0: Thank you, Zoe, for reading to us uh, from the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible, feel free to keep it open, John chapter 12. uh, We're looking at verse 12 uh, to 19, all about the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, uh, the theme of today. Shall we pray, though, as we come to God's word this morning? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this most holy week. We thank you, Father, for the events that happened 2,000 years ago. But Lord, they are not just ancient stories to be dusted off. They are the truth and the reality of our today. That Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom we are all the worst. So Father, we pray that as we come to this story and all the stories of Holy Week, may you speak to our hearts, may you teach us the way to come to the cross, and may we experience the resurrection. So open our ears to hear this morning, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. I wonder what uh, was going through Jesus' mind as he rode that donkey, as he came towards Jerusalem. The moment he'd been waiting for, for so long, had arrived. But it wasn't going to be an easy story for him, was it? So I wonder what was going through his mind at that time. We here in our country, we are looking forward to May the 6th, are we not? (laughs) the coronation of our new king, King Charles. And in some ways I always felt a little bit sorry for King Charles because um, he's been waiting a long time, hasn't he, to become king. He's now 74, 74. So I wonder what will be going through his mind as he goes through that procession towards, um, is it Westminster he's going to? Westminster. All through the streets of London, Westminster Abbey, uh, for his coronation. He'll have a mixture of feelings, won't he? Excitement, he's been waiting, expectation, joy, but there'll be a, a mournfulness to him as well because of his mother passing, all kinds of thoughts and feelings going through him. In many ways, Jesus has those same feelings because Jesus has been waiting not 74 years to become king, but thousands of years. Ever since Israel had their first king, King Saul and then King David and then King Solomon. The nation of Israel has been waiting for the true king, God's king, the Messiah to come. And you can imagine Jesus as well for those hundreds of years. Is it time? Is it my time yet? Is it time to become the true king and saviour of the world? And that moment has finally arrived. And he comes riding on that donkey. The thoughts and feelings that must have been going through his mind. John's Gospel, as we read through John's Gospel, gives us many different insights into what's happening that day. In some ways, it was just a simple scene, wasn't it? A man coming riding on a donkey with crowds, with palm branches, celebrating him. Um, That scene... Has so much depth to it, though, that John brings to us in his gospel account. John quotes from several places in the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 118 and he quotes from Ze- Zechariah chapter 9. And we're going to have a look at those later because they give us insight into what's going on. But first of all, do you remember the crowds? What are they shouting as they're waving their palm branches? That one word, Hosanna. And have you ever thought to yourself, we say that, we sing that word all the time in our songs, what does it actually mean? It just simply means, save us. Save us. It's a cry to the Lord to save us. It's a word both of praise, but it's a word also of prayer. Save us, Lord. I can't help but think over the last few weeks as we've been looking at the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember that story? How the lost son or or the the parables that surround the parable of the lost son with the lost sheep and the lost coin. And how um, the shepherd goes to find the lost sheep. Or we thought last week how the elder brother should have gone and looked for the younger brother who was lost. That word Hosanna. Save us. I'm lost, I'm lost Lord, find me, help me, I'm in trouble, I don't know um, how to live, I don't know um, how to control the events going on around us, we've lived under oppression Lord, from the Romans, we've lived in poverty and difficult times, you can imagine the people saying here comes our king, the right word to shout is Hosanna, save us. We're lost. It's the right prayer, actually, for anyone, anywhere, at any time. (laughs) If you haven't quite yet realized that at some point in your life you've been lost and in need of help of God, then you're probably more lost than you realize. Hosanna. It's a daily prayer. It's a prayer that we should be crying out from our hearts all the time, really. Lord, find us. Help us. Hosanna. So, Jesus, in that sense, let's picture him then. He's riding on the donkey. Let's picture him as that older brother who's coming to look for his younger brother in the story of the prodigal son. Here comes the older brother. He's riding into town and he's going to look for the younger brother in this lost city, this city that has become corrupt, this city that has become lost in its ways. And he comes into the city to look for the lost brother. Or to look for many lost brothers and sisters. To look for the lost children of Israel. And he does it publicly, doesn't he? He comes not just sort of um, in stealth or incognito. He doesn't come just into Jerusalem with a hood over his head and (coughs) sneak in in order to look for the lost. He comes publicly, doesn't he? On a donkey so that all can see him come in. And I often wonder why he did that. Partly it's because of his coronation as king, and that's appropriate. We'll come to look at that. But this idea of lostness, he comes publicly. Why? Because I think he wants all the lost brothers, all the lost sons and daughters of Israel to be able to see him when he comes. So picture this. Sometimes at the end of the school year at Chalkwell Hall the school just around the corner, at the end of the school year, because my kids are there, the last day of school in the summer term, uh, tradition is that all the children just go off to the park for picnics, games, fun. If you've ever seen Chalkwell Park on the last day of the school term, avoid it, (laughs) because it's just chaos and crowded and everything. But it's a lot of fun. All the parents are there, everyone. It's packed, Chalkwell Park. And sometimes I'm sitting there, um, supposed to keep one eye on the children, uh, but you get talking, don't you? Uh, Zoe's nodding along, because I know Zoe's there often. And uh, occasionally, I, I put my head up and thought, I, I wonder where the kids are. And, of course, you look up, and you see a sea of people and children. You have no idea. So what I tried to do at that point is, you know, you might go to the middle of the park. You might stand on your tiptoes so that you can see. Or you might stand on a park bench. Uh, in order that, not just so that you can look for them, but that your children can see where you are. Does that make sense? Maybe it's not quite the best illustration, but you can imagine that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying there's so many lost people in this world. I need to find a place where I can publicly stand so that all people can see me. So that all people can know where I am. So that when I cry out, where are you? I'm here. Everyone would know where to look where to see him. That's so important that Jesus' ministry on this week was public. Everyone knew where Jesus was that day. The Romans knew where he was. The Pharisees and the religious leaders knew where he was. The crowds knew where, where he was. Everyone did. And we too this day, this week, we know where to look for God. So important, isn't it? So many people are hungry and thirsting and looking for answers in this world. And they're reading books and they're asking friends, they're listening to people on TV, what are the answers to life? How can I find God? How can I find meaning? And we Christians can say, God has made it obvious. In the most public place, every year at Easter, you can see Him. There He is. Our God, riding humbly on a donkey, hanging on a cross, there you can see him. And if you cry out, Hosanna, he will hear you and he will see you, and you can see him. We know the way to the cross. So Jesus comes as the older brother. But from Psalm 118, the crowds shout, and they quote Psalm 118, they say this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now he's quoting, the crowds are quoting from Psalm 118. So if you have a Bible, let's do a little bit of Bible study, shall we? (coughs) Flip flip open to Psalm 118. It's on page uh, 616 in my Bible. Psalm 118. And we're going to see from this psalm how not only is Jesus coming as king, not only is he coming as the older brother, he's coming also as God's perfect sacrifice, as the sacrificial lamb who comes to save the world. Psalm 118 is a wonderful psalm. We haven't got time to read the whole thing, but there's that wonderful refrain that you can see through verses 1 to 4. That wonderful sentence His love endures forever. It's a psalm of praise that suggests, that is celebrating that God's love endures forever. Or as I like to think about it in this psalm, in the context of Holy Week, his love goes all the way. His love goes all the way. As far as it needs to go, even to death, his love endures forever. And then you can see where the the crowd's quotes from verse 26. Or if you go from verse 25, we've got the word Hosanna. Psalm 118, verse 25, Lord, save us. You see that? Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, verse 27, and he has made his light shine on us with bowels in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Isn't that an interesting verse there from verse 27? The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession. So that's the festal procession as they go into Jerusalem, praising him, Hosanna. But where are they supposed to go? On this procession. Look Look what the psalmist says. They go riding into Jerusalem. Where to? Up to the horns of the altar. To the altar. To the temple. Where the sacrifices are to be made. This psalm is all about taking God's perfect sacrifice. And bringing it to die for the sins of the world. And to, for the sins of the people. Even footnoted in. Verse 27 of Psalm 118, look at the footnote, the way it could be translated if you've got your Bible open, footnoted in my Bible for verse 27, says, um, or bind the festal sacrifice with ropes and take it to the horns of the altar. Bind the festal sacrifice with ropes. Don't they bind him, Jesus? when they come for arresting him, they bind him up like that sacrifice and they take him not to the altar of the temple but to the altar of the cross. So Jesus, yes, he's riding as a king, triumphant, but he comes meek and mild as a gentle lamb ready to be sacrificed. His love endures forever. And if you know the account from the other Gospels, Jesus rides in on his donkey and he does go to the temple. And what does he find there? He finds the religious leaders uh, and the money changers there acting corruptly, charging the people extra money to, in order to uh, fleece them for their sacrifices and things like that. And he goes into the temple and he turns over the, ooh, turns over the tables, doesn't he? I almost turned this table over. That would, have, that would have been good. There's a microphone on it. It would have gone bang. He turns over the tables. He says, this is not right. This is not how this temple of sacrifice is supposed to happen. You're exploiting the people. You're enslaving the people to a religious system that is crushing them. You're not helping them relieve their guilt and their burdens and their sin. You're ensnaring them in the corrupt ways of the world. And he's so angry, he turns the tables over But I think that's part of this Psalm 118. He's been led to the temple and he's saying, I am the sacrificial lamb. Without cost, get rid of this money, get rid of this corruption. I'm going to set the people free by my sacrifice. And again, is that not what we need today? Is that not what we need? We need a saviour to come. Who sets us free from the corrupt ways of this world that just enslave us. Our own sins. The things that people get us to do and buy into in this world. The things that end up just enslaving our hearts, minds, bodies into the systems of this world. We need Jesus to come and turn those tables over and say, none of that's going to help. None of that's going to work. What you need is a free offering sacrifice. Me. Take me instead of these corrupt ways. I'm here to really set you free. He exchanges himself. Where they were exchanging money and sacrifices. Said, Don't exchange that. Exchange me. I will be that debt. I will take on that debt that sets free the younger brother. Do you remember that? A younger brother full of debt and owes so much. The older brother comes and says, "Exchange me, I will pay it off." So Psalm 118 shows us that Jesus comes as a sacrifice, as a sacrifice. He comes as an older brother, a sacrifice. And then we see from Zechariah, chapter nine, that he comes as a king for his coronation. So in John chapter 12, we see Zechariah quoted from verse 14, "Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not, and this is quoting Zechariah now, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So, should we have a look at Zechariah 9? Sorry, that little bit of Bible study again. Let's have a look. Flick back into your Bibles. Shout out page number, whoever gets there first, you can win a prize. 954. Nine, five, four. That was so fast. Extra pudding <laughs> at first Sunday lunch. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Do you see it quoted? Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a funny scene, isn't it? Because you would expect the king to not come if he's righteous and victorious and he is the king why does he come lowly and riding on a donkey i would love to see that with king charles wouldn't that be brilliant <laughs> the surprise of all he says this carriage i like the gold don't get me wrong i like gold but has anyone got a donkey at 74 actually we might be a little bit worried but he would have a huge entourage wouldn't, wouldn't he? wouldn't that be so impressive Is he's got like Hundreds of horses with the people with the big hats, and he's got um, the beef eaters and all the rest of it, all with him. And he's just everyone's like, "Where is he?" And he's just trotting along on a on a donkey. He'd have plenty of people to help him. But Jesus doesn't have any of that. He doesn't have soldiers. He doesn't have a golden chariot. Um, people are waving their flags, though, aren't they, with the bunting and that, with the palm branches? But he's lowly and riding on a donkey. Just wearing normal clothes, presumably. What a statement that is. He could be saying, Look, to be honest, I don't need that. I don't need worldly power. I know who I am, I am the King of Glory. He could also, um, it could also be saying, Nothing in this world can make him more beautiful than he already is. No amount of gold or fancy clothes or pomp and ceremony can make him any more beautiful. Maybe he was shining, his face shining as beautiful as it could be as he walked, rode in on that donkey. Could be that. But it's also something else. Verse 10 of Zechariah chapter 9. I will take away, this is. Quoting, so he's just quoted about the riding on the donkey. Our king is coming, riding on a donkey. Verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He's come to take away the chariots and the soldiers and the war horses and the battle bow. So he doesn't come with all that stuff. He comes on a donkey. How's he going to do it? Because he's up against plenty of Romans who have all that stuff. He's up against a world that is hostile to him. He's up against the devil even and all his fallen angels. And he's up against Pontius Pilate and the soldiers of the Jews. He's up against them all. How can he he take those weapons away from them and create peace when he hasn't got any weapons at all? Usually the person with the bigger gun gets the other one to drop their gun. But he doesn't come with any. How's he going to do that? It's a deep thought. It's a really deep thought. And I think he does it in this way. He has a strategy and it has two parts to it. The first part is he's going to stand on the cross or be hung on the cross and he's going to allow all his enemies to use all the weapons they have against him until they've run out. Does that make sense? He's going to hold himself up on the cross for long enough until all the weapons of this world have been exhausted. Spears, fists, crown of thorns, the fiery darts of the evil one, the mockeries, the abuse. Anything else you can think of in this world that is a weapon? Betrayal, jealousy, All of that stuff, fire everything you've got and he will receive them without fighting back. All of it. Until there's no ammunition left. All the guns are empty. Nothing more can be done. In fact, even death has a go and uses death's final weapon and he takes that too until there's nothing left. And then he rises from the dead and gives that one knockout blow to his final enemy when it has nothing left. Exhausted and tired, all the enemies of this world, at the end he just pushes them over. They've got nothing left. There's that wonderful verse in Colossians that says that through the cross, God has disarmed all the rulers and powers of this world. Disarmed them. That was the first part of the approach, the strategy. The second part was this, that after all the the enemies have lost all their weapons, after all the chariots, after all the battle bows, all the war horses, what does he then do? After they've lost them all and expended them all, he then says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so he turns their weapons into peace. And he doesn't just them aside or destroy them he offers a a hand of friendship that's how he does it that's how this king does it that's why he doesn't need anything when he comes into Jerusalem he doesn't need any weapons he doesn't need any power or might that's his strategy and it's worked for countless millions of Christians throughout the age it's worked He brings peace. So Jesus came in that public way. He came as the older brother looking for the lost. He came as the sacrifice ready to exchange himself to set us free. He came as the king to take away all the weapons of this world and to allow us to come back to him. Finally, he came in this public way, even though it would mean a lot of trouble for him. He knew that if he came, it would mean much trouble for him. But he did it because he's not ashamed of you and he's not ashamed of me. He came in that public way to say, I've come, and he's standing in the center of the world, the center of Jerusalem, the center of the marketplaces, the center of the temple, and he says, I'm not ashamed of you. I love you. I will stand for you. I have come for you. I've come to be your king, your brother, your savior and your friend. Here I stand for you. So the simple question we all have in our lives is, will we be ashamed of him? Will we be like those who slunk back into the crowds and avoided the focus? Will we be those ones who think I can't have the limelight on me. I can't be known as a Christian with him. It's too much focus. Are you going to be those ones who ignore him or just get on with your life and say, that's all very nice, but I'm going to go a different way? Or are you prepared to not be ashamed of Jesus, even if it's going to cost, even if it means standing for him in this world? Because he's not ashamed of you. That's where we've got to meet him at the cross, at the place where he gave himself for us, we must give ourselves to him. Let's pray.